Now, did you all say amen because of the words you just sang, or did you say amen because, boy, I don't know that song. I'm really thankful that one's over. (laughs) Maybe a little both there could be. All right. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Book of Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, we're going to be looking at verse 15 today. And you think, oh my goodness, how are we going to only look at one verse here today? Well, it is chock full, chock full of stuff here today. And, uh, you know, Hebrews has been a very challenging book. It is probably one of the, the most challenging theologically uh, to understand. And so sometimes people will say, well, Pastor, you know, why don't you just uh, pull back? Why don't you just scale that back a little bit? Uh, because maybe some people, you know, are having a hard time grasping. But um, the reason I don't is because I'm really trying to be faithful to the way it was read to the original church, word by word, verse by verse. And sometimes we don't get it all on the first go around, but that's okay. It's kind of like osmosis, right? You know, the more we keep kind of saturating our mind, the more we're challenged, the more we go over our notes again throughout the rest of the week, the more it starts to kind of connect in there. And so uh, that is actually by design. We're really trying to challenge you from the Word of God, dig a little bit deeper uh, with the hopes that you, uh, as God's Holy Spirit works within you, and illuminates the text, opens up your eyes and your heart to his wonderful truth that you apply that uh, to your life. All right, let me uh, just open with a little, share a little thing with you. First of all, uh, one of our family's favorite pizza places is Papa John's. Now, I can tell I probably lost about half of you just by saying that one thing there, because people are very passionate about what their pizza, where they eat their pizza. Anyway, Papa John's has a tagline in their advertising that said, better ingredients, better pizza. Now, I know there's the recipe, but I will, I'll spare you from all of that. But better ingredients, better pizza. However, many of you may not know that Papa John's was actually sued by their competitor for that tagline. I mean, they said, listen, how in the world can you say you have better ingredients than we do? A tomato is a tomato. A salami is a salami, right? Or a pepperoni is a pepperoni. So how can you say we have better ingredients than we do? Now, I'm not a lawyer, so uh, I won't offer you my untrained opinion of the legality of their claim, the competitor's claim. But at the heart of that litigation was still a question at hand. How can you possibly make the claim that you've got better ingredients and therefore a better pizza? In a very real sense, that's what we're going to, it's going to be happening here in our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. So hopefully you have found yourself there by now, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. And we want to continue our excellent study into this epistle. The author of Hebrews has been arguing that Jesus is a better high priest because his ministry is better and he's the mediator of a better covenant. And so just like the competitor of Papa John's questioned the validity of Papa John's claim to make a better pizza, the author of Hebrews anticipates the objections to his claim. How is it that Jesus is a better high priest? How is it that he's the better mediator? And how is this new covenant better than the old covenant that we've been under for all of this time? And so... He sets out to answer those claims beginning in verse 15 all the way through the end of the chapter. That's what he's going to be doing. So from this, verse 15 on. But verse 15 is like the capstone. It's like a summary of all that he's going to say 
afterwards. And so we want to lay that foundation for you uh, so the next couple of weeks as we finish up this chapter, uh, we have a good solid understanding of what's happening here. Specifically, here's what he's trying to answer. In what sense exactly is the covenant that Jesus mediates better than the old covenant that Moses mediated? Tell me how that's better. Because they weren't going to just walk away from the law and the sacrifices and all of that without understanding fully what makes this better. Now, you may recall from our previous study in this chapter that the author has been building towards answering that question since the very beginning. Actually, it started about the middle of chapter 8, verse 6. But looking at your notes for reference that you have in front of you, in verses 1 through 5, the author's focus was on the design and the furnishings of the tabernacle. So this is just review for you. Specifically, he wanted you to notice the division, the division between the holy place and the Holy of Holies. Secondly, he wanted you to notice that the furnishings themselves in the sanctuary, uh, and he wanted you to notice their function. And the main point from those first five verses was twofold. Number one, there was still a division between Israel and God as the two veils uh, represented, right? The people could only go so far, and then there was a veil there, and only a priest could go in. Only those from the tribe of Levi could go in and minister in there. And then there was a second veil. So even while the priests were in there, there was a second veil that reminded them that they couldn't go any further or get any closer to God's presence. Only the high priest could do that only one time a year with very specific requirements. Secondly, each of those furnishings and their placement pointed to Christ. Right? The lampstand was the light of Christ. The bread, the showbread was the bread of life and so on. Okay, now from your notes again, look at verses 6 through 10. <coughs> the focus moves then from the design and the function of the tabernacle to the priestly service that was done in the sanctuary, as well as the implications for that on worship. So we saw that the priestly ministry service was restricted. Even they could not come into God's presence in the Holy of Holies. It was inadequate. Remember, all of that trimming of the oil, all of that replacing of the bread every Sabbath, all of that again and again and again showed that whatever they were doing was only temporary. All of that was not could not provide eternal redemption, could not could not satisfy the Lord, did not provide them better access to God. They just had to keep doing it again and again and again and again. It was a constant reminder to them that sinful men could not approach a holy God any way that they chose. That, that God was very specific about who could approach him and when and how. So even in the, in the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would enter on the Day of Atonement once a year, he could not make the worshiper perfect or complete as God had intended. He could not forgive his sins eternally. No matter what, all of the rituals, all of the things he was doing, sprinkling the blood, right? All of that could not provide eternal redemption for their sins, nor could it provide access to the Israelites to God, unhindered access. None of that. It had to be repeated again and again. It was only temporary. And remember, it only covered the sins on the Day of Atonement for the sins that were committed in ignorance from the previous year. 
right? So once those were atoned for and you start a new year, all of those sins that you committed in ignorance, right, they're piling up again. So you could never have a pure conscience. You could never have a... You always knew that there was something that had to be atoned for because every sin needs to be atoned for before a holy and righteous God. Every sin. Right? There were sins that they had committed. There were sins that they had omitted. And then there were sins they didn't even know that they had done. Those all still needed to be atoned for. Okay. So, and that brought us to Jesus' high priestly ministry and why it was better than the priestly ministry that we just talked about in verses 6 to 10. So in your notes, once again, verses 11 to 14, why is it that Jesus is a, a better priestly ministry? Well, Jesus worships in a better sanctuary, one not made of this creation, one not made by human hands. Secondly, Jesus offers a better sacrifice. He doesn't bring the blood of bulls and goats. He brought his own blood, the lamb the perfect lamb of God, the sinless one. He brought his own blood. Lastly, Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all, right? Once and for all. And the results in were the, were the forgiveness of sins for how long? Forever. Forever. Which purifies our conscience and sanctifies our service for worship. And it's because of his ministry that we attain, obtain eternal redemption. All right, all of that is setting up for us to understand the author of Hebrews' argument of why this new covenant is better than the old covenant. So before we get to that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking to bless our time together in his word here this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for your grace upon grace upon grace in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for each and every saint that you've brought here today, Lord. I pray you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds, Lord, to your wonderful truth. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word. We wouldn't just hear this, Lord, and then say, boy, the person next to me really needs this. But rather, Lord, we would say, Father, what would you have me do with this in my life first? How can I apply this to my life in a way that brings you honor, and glory. So, Father, that's our heart's desire here this morning. We pray that every thought we have will be held captive for you, and that everything we say and do, and even think, would bring honor and glory to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're in verse 15. Let's look at that together then, shall we? Hebrews 9, verse 15. For this reason, what reason? All that he's been talking about, all that I just reviewed uh, from verse 1 on, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Okay, He is the mediator of a new covenant. So verse 15 is really, like I said, a summary statement of the entire chapter. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And again, what is a mediator? A mediator is one who stands between two parties, right, and helps, and helps to reconcile those two parties. The very fact that we even need a mediator demonstrates, again, that we are separated from God, right? We wouldn't need a mediator if we had already had access to God. If what they were doing before would have provided access to God, we have no need for a mediator, what is it that separates us from God? As Eric said, it starts with an S and ends with in. Okay, it is sin. Sin is what separates us from a holy and righteous God. 
And sin is what must be addressed permanently in order for us to have permanent and unhindered access to God. We can't have a temporary covering for sin and expect eternal access to God because those sins need to be dealt with eternally and permanently. Now, having laid down that as a foundation, the author is stating that there's really only one mediator who can bring about permanent and unhindered access to God. There's only one mediator who can obtain eternal redemption for us. And there's only one mediator through whom we can obtain eternal redemption and our eternal inheritance, and that mediator is Jesus. We cannot obtain any of those things on our own efforts. There's nothing I can do personally to obtain eternal redemption for myself apart from Christ. Nothing I can do. I can't earn my way to heaven. I can't think my way into heaven. I can't do enough good deeds. I can't open enough orphanages or build enough hospitals. I can't do any of those things to get and have eternal redemption for my sins. None of those things. We cannot obtain any of those things through our own efforts. No amount of good works will uh, provide eternal redemption. Nothing in the sacrificial system under the law. Nothing in the law. Nothing from the priest or even the high priest could ever purify your conscience because they were only temporary. And as I explained earlier, the moment I sinned, there I am again. I, I need, I'm, I'm, I can't have a pure conscience because I just sinned. And so until I go and uh, shed blood or make a sacrifice for that sin, I'm still carrying around that guilt. Nothing under the old covenant could secure any of those things either. There needed to be a new covenant and a new mediator. And Jesus is that new mediator. He is the one who stands in the gap between God and men. He reconciles God to men, and he reconciles men to God. Look, the author has been already telling you and quoted Jeremiah 31, 31, right? The new covenant which incidentally is really the only place in the Old Testament that explicitly talks about the new covenant. The author has already demonstrated that Jesus is the only one that fulfills all of those prophecies, right? When, he, when, the, when his law would not be written, his word would not be written on stone tablets, but where? In our hearts and in our minds. So he's already demonstrated Jesus is the only one to do that. He's the reality to which all those, new, those Old Testament types were pointing towards. So to leave Christ and go back to those old shadows would be to reject the reality in favor of the shadows. And by so doing, you would be rejecting Christ, which your only means to reconcile with God. Now, when did Jesus actually become the mediator, or how did that happen? Our text actually tells us that. If you see that little phrase, a little clause there, it says, so that, okay, Jesus, for this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant. And then notice what comes next. Since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions. Look at that. Since a death has taken place, Jesus, by the act of his death, became the mediator between God and men. Actually, that is point number one. Through his death, Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. Do you see that? Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. The only way that anybody could ever have access to God 
was if their sin had been atoned for, right? The wages of sin is death. Sin put up a barrier of death. So when Jesus died and paid for our, our sins, he removed that barrier of sin. His death was payment of sin, which tore that veil and provided access to the Holy of Holies. When Jesus died, he removed the barrier and provided that unhindered access to God. It was by his death. It was at his death that inaugurated the new covenant. It was through his death that the veil tore from top to bottom. Through his death that provided that access to God. Through his death and atoning sacrifice, our sins are forgiven. Now look at point number two then. Through his death, Jesus provided redemption for every age. Through his death, Jesus provided redemption for every age. Now notice there in verse 15b, the second part of verse 15, it says, since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Now, that's a very interesting statement. So the author stating that Jesus' death not only provided redemption for sins under the new covenant, right, since the cross, but saying, he said, it also provided redemption for sins under the old covenant. His death works to forgive the sins of all those believers under the Mosaic covenant, and it works forward to forgive the sin of all the believers under the new covenant, and the obvious inference here is that the sins, those sins could not really be forgiven under the first covenant, and that therefore the new covenant was an absolute necessity. So think about that for just a second. Can you imagine how shocking that would have been to hear for those listening that were coming out of Judaism? Because basically what he was saying is, he just told them that all of those sacrifices that they were doing, all of that blood that was shed, all of those animal sacrifices year after year after year, meant absolutely nothing apart from the death of Jesus on the cross. They did not provide redemption of our sins. All of those countless sacrifices were meaningless for the redemption of sins. But what Jesus' sacrifice accomplished then, these Old Testament sacrifices took on the significance of being pointers to the real sacrifice that would come. And that's a mind-boggling truth that the author has just set forth. People often ask now, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Some people say, well, they were saved by works. It was their works that saved them. But then that contradicts the biblical teaching on man's sinfulness, and it offers an inadequate view of God's justice. In other words, if I could earn my way, if I could work my way off on sins, then God is just paying me for what I already did. It's just a transaction. There's no grace, no mercy involved. I earned it, and God is saying, okay, you earned it. Let me pay you with forgiving your sins. But that contradicts the word of God, so we can toss that one. Others would insist that salvation was the result of being the part of Israel. They were born into it because they were an Israelite and they were God's chosen people. But Paul explains, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. 
Having the right pedigree does not ensure you have a right relationship with God. Or, if we put it in today's terms, just because your grandparents are faithful uh, believers does not mean that their grandchildren are saved. They're not saved on the basis of your grandparents' faithfulness and faith. They are saved on their own belief in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They were saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. They were saved by the death of Christ on their behalf. Keep your place in Hebrews chapter 9 here and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Very well-known passage here. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 24. Here's what Paul writes. He's talking about justification here. He just got done saying, in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how do we account for this sin? How are we going to be able to stand before a a holy and righteous God? Verse 24, being justified, justified means I'm declared not guilty. It's a forensic term. It's a legal term. I'm declared not guilty. It would be similar to if I... Let's say that I murdered somebody, God forbid, okay? If I murdered somebody and then I stand before the judge, and right when the judge is about to hit the gavel down, somebody steps in and says, I will pay that price. I will take the punishment of whatever that is that he did for his murder. And so the judge says, okay, you will pay the price then and you may go free. So I would be set free. Does it make me not guilty? No, I was still guilty, wasn't I? I still committed the sin, but I'm declared not guilty. That's what justification means, okay? I'm declared not guilty. So look at verse 24. Being justified, being declared not guilty, how? As a gift by his grace through what? The redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The redeeming, the pain of the price which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly so that all would know as a propitiation. That's another big word, which means what? The turning away of God's wrath, okay? The appeasing of God's justice in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness Because in the forbearance of God, he did what for the sins that were previously committed? He passed over those sins. He passed over those sins. You know, uh, have you ever gotten a letter in the mail from a credit card company telling you that you're pre-qualified? You guys get those? We seem to get those every week. There's just another another one there. And they, well, the letters will usually tell you if you spend $5,000, they've already checked you out, decided you'd be a good customer. Now, this is just a trick, right? I can hear a couple of you laughing already. And they're just trying to get you to spend money so they can charge you some interest on here. And God has also, though, in a sense, pre-qualified us for righteousness. And unlike the trickery involved with the credit card companies, he's pre-qualified us by already applying the righteousness of Christ to our accounts for all who have put their faith and trust in Christ. Now, 
in the same way, if you can think about it, remember when the high priest would go in on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement, right? What sins was he forgiving? Was it the sins, the future sins that they hadn't committed yet? No, it was all of those sins in the past. So in other words, he was, through the shed blood of Christ, was trying to atone or was atoning for past sins, right, that they had committed. It was retroactive, if you will, for the sins that were committed the previous year. But the sacrifice of Christ extends all the way back to Moses, it tells us here. And by implication, I will tell you, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The sacrifices offered were but shadows of the sacrifice that was to come that would be sufficient to cover all that sin. The sacrifices that they were doing demonstrated their faith in God's final sacrifice, Sometimes you may have heard it like this. All of those Old Testament saints were saved by grace, by, uh, through faith, on this side of the cross, looking forward to the cross, looking forward to the time when God would send the Messiah who would take on the sins of the world, who would be, who would stand in our stead, who would bear our, our sorrows, who by his stripes we are healed. So on this side of the cross, they were looking forward to that day when they would have eternal deliverance, eternal salvation. On this side of the cross, where we are today, we look back at what Jesus has done. And that gets applied to us as well. Acts 17.30 says, In the times of this ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. And believe. You see, there was a time in God's mind when he saw Jesus' death on behalf of those even who lived before he died, knowing that because of their faith and obedience, he would be applying Christ's righteousness to them through faith by his grace. So when Christ died, verse 15 tells us, he died for the redemption of the transgressions of those under the first covenant that they who are called, who are they who are called? Well, the tense of this verb suggests that it's an eternal act of God before the world's foundation, and that's carried out with certainty. Now, in the Greek, it's something called a perfect passive tense. What does that mean? It means a perfect tense means something that happened in the past that has continuing results today. Happened here but still has the same results carry on forever. Passive means I'm not the one who did it. Somebody else did it for me. So something happened in the past, right? But it has continuing results today, but I'm not the one who did it. It was acted upon by me. The context here is he's obviously talking about Israel in the context of the verse that we're in in Hebrews 9. But God has provided the sacrifice that even reached back and gathered up those who were believing Jews. So now when you look at the Old Testament, don't be confused and think that those sacrifices were taking away their sin. They didn't take away sin. They were acts of obedience that showed that their faith was legitimate, that God would someday deliver them through the Messiah, through the, through the Lamb of God. So they were saved by God, watch this, knowing Christ would in the future bear their sins, even though they didn't understand that. 
They just believed that God sent a Messiah would come and that they would have eternal deliverance, eternal salvation. And guess how we're saved today? Knowing that Christ has already paid the price for our sins. So on this side of the cross, the back in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the cross. Here we're looking back at the cross. It's really two sides of the same event. Through his death, Jesus provided redemption for every age, not just our current age. Look at point number three then. So we look at the last part of verse 15. He says here in Romans 9, 15, he says, Since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Point number three, through his death, he ensured believers will receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Okay? In your notes, through his death, he ensured believers will receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What is the purpose of all the work that Christ has done at the cross? So that all those who are called will receive their promised inheritance. What is our promised inheritance? It is our eternal salvation and all that that includes, including access to God, unhindered. See, the ancient Jews were all consumed about land and vineyards, but the new covenant transcends all of that for, a, for an inheritance that's not just talking about land and vineyards. It's not just talking about a land flowing with milk and honey. It's talking about an eternal resting place with God forever, having access to him forever, being in his presence forever, knowing our sins are forgiven forever. See, that's far different. Peter calls it an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved where? In heaven for you. For you. He's talking to believers. Jesus mediates the new covenant that transcends anything they could have imagined in the old covenant. And through his death, Jesus inaugurates the old covenant. Through his death, he provides redemption for every age. And through his death, he ensured that believers will receive the eternal inheritance. But all these things are really dependent upon one thing. And that's the sufficiency of Jesus' death on our behalf. All of that, all of those things, the fact that he is the mediator of a new covenant, the fact that he's anchored in the Holy of Holies, all of that is predicated upon his death being sufficient to ensure that all of those things would happen. Praise God it did. You know, as true believers, we're never to return to the slave market of sin, never to be held captive by the devil or this world. Never to face the wrath of God against sinners. And the promise assures the certainty of what's set forth here. We have a hard time when we see the promise, when we see that in Scripture, don't we? We have a hard time today when we look at that word promise because a promise doesn't seem to mean what it meant even just 50 years ago. Imagine 2,000 years ago. So we see promises and we go, well, there was a promise made in a marriage and then those promises were broken, or there was promises about repaying money, and then, you know, loans are defaulted in record number today. In fact, in fact, the promise is only as good as the character and the ability of the one making the promise. 
That's why Paul reminded Titus to look forward to the great hope of eternal life. And then he followed that up with the assurance that God cannot lie. He's saying, listen, your promise is based on the character of God, and he cannot lie, he cannot tell the truth, he cannot act contrary to the truth, and he can never change. How secure is that promise? What God has promised the patriarchs of the old was grounded in the future of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. All of that, God's plan of redemption, from Genesis to Revelation, all of that was pointing pointing towards Christ. Can you imagine that? Even before time began. So here's what I want you to take away from this, folks. Point number one, through his death, Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. The only way that anybody could ever have access to God was if their sin had been atoned for. And that required not just the shedding of blood, but death. Death had to occur. So when Jesus died and paid for sin, he removed that barrier. And, of course, his death was payment for our sin. That tore the veil and provided access to God. And through his sacrificial death, the promises of the new covenant have been brought about. Through his death, he has inaugurated the new covenant. Point number two, through his death, he provided redemption for every age. Jesus' death not only provided the redemption for sins under the new covenant, it provided redemption of sins under the old covenant. The sacrifices offered were just shadows pointing to Christ. And the sacrifices themselves demonstrated their faith in God's final sacrifice as they looked beyond the blood of bulls and goats to God's perfect sacrifice. And point number three, through his death, he ensured believers will receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What is our eternal inheritance? It is our eternal salvation and unhindered access to God. As Peter says, it is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, will never fade away, reserved in heaven for all you who believe. What God promised the patriarchs of the old was grounded in the future work of Christ on the cross. Now, I want you to notice the very fact that the new covenant was prophesied along with the me a new mediator lets you know that God knew his people would never be able to uphold the law perfectly. The law was never intended to be the means of salvation. There was never a possibility of salvation apart from some divine atonement. The blood of bulls and goats was never going to be able to pay the price for our sins. They were just a symbol, a covering to point us towards God's ultimate sacrifice of his son. Never a possibility of salvation in this fallen world apart from the grace of God in Christ. The law was not an alternative way. No, the law was the standard of living that God's people were to walk after, yet God knew they would never be able to do it perfectly. He knew that they would never be able to follow the law perfectly. They were going to be condemned by that standard, and therefore, in the very giving of the law itself, God gave sacrifices to provide for people who would fall short, and he knew they would. But those sacrifices did not bring about the forgiveness of sins eternally, they just covered them. They simply pointed forward to the one that would happen through Christ's 
So what's so significant about what we covered here today? What is so significant about? First, a couple things here. Can you imagine that those who were tempted to go back to Judaism, remember that's who he's speaking to, right? He's speaking to believers and professing believers who were tempted to go back to the old system. Remember, they're facing intense persecution, right? They can't shop, right? They can't, they can't worship at the synagogue. They can't shop in the local market. Their kids are kicked out of all of the schools, right? They're in intense persecution, and they're thinking about going back to that old covenant. And here, the author has just basically told them, if you do, it will do you absolutely no good because all of the effectiveness of what you think was being accomplished wasn't accomplished until Christ, who you have stated you put your faith into. It was a shadow. It was a symbol. It was just pointing towards Christ. So you're going to abandon Christ, who actually accomplishes what all of those symbols and shadows were pointing to, to go back to the symbols and shadows. Take away Christ, take away all, all of those ceremonial and rituals and sacrifices without Christ were just empty rituals and ceremonies. What a tremendous argument he's putting forth here before these people. But yet, in the same way, we face that struggle every time we turn away for the sole sacrifice or the sole instrument of reconciliation or the work of Lord Jesus Christ to anything else that we think is going to save us other than Christ. We face the same dilemma that these people were in. Anytime we think we can get to God any other way but then through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we're basically doing the same thing that they are trying to do, which is to turn away from Christ and go back to some other way that we think we can get to God without him. We don't get to create our own way of salvation. We don't get to say, I know what God's word says, but I believe I can get to heaven this way. Or if I'm a really good person, well, that may be true, but that's not the standard for eternal salvation, nor is it the means of eternal salvation. Besides the fact that your own self-righteousness is pugnant to God, that you and I, as created beings, would be so arrogant to think that we can disregard God's means of salvation for us and come up with our own and then tell him he must accept us because, after all, we thought of it. And it seems fair to us. Lord, have mercy on us. If Jesus was paying for the penalty of sin and redeeming those sins committed by all those who believed in him as Savior by his death, is there any possibility of someone saying, well, that's okay, that's fine. I know he's done that, but I'm going to get to God some other way. I'm going to get to God on my own. I have this other plan for my relationship with God. Do you think there's any chance that that's going to fly if the actual price for redeeming our sins was the death of his own son? Do you think that any other proposal that we put forth to God as a means of having to accept us is going to fly? Please say no. See, this is the great argument for salvation alone in Christ alone, because if his work was to pay the penalty for sins of those who believe on him, 
Is there any other way for that sin to be paid for? No. The author of Hebrews says, no, there's only one way for that sin to be paid for, and you can't do it. I can't do it either. Only the Son could do it, and he did. There was a lifeguard that was on duty when he noticed a gentleman was in trouble, and he dove in the water, and he swam out to the struggling man, stopping about three feet from him. And from that short distance, the lifeguard realized that the victim was a rather large man. Not wanting to be taken under, the lifeguard considered his dilemma. Not only was the man sizable, but he was also trying to save himself. He was afraid, and he was swinging his arms, and he was panicking, and he was throwing his, and uh, uh, slapping his arms on the water. He was in trouble. In an effort to save himself, the man was swinging wildly against the water. He was draining every energy quickly out of his body. The lifeguard continued to tread water just a short distance away from him. Not because he didn't care, but because he was waiting for the man to stop trying to save himself. He knew that he'd be unable to save the drowning man as long as he was using his own methods, insisting on his own strength, relying on his own ability. His cry for help contradicted his his efforts to save himself. Help me, help me as I'm trying to save myself. His approach was hindered and hindered the lifeguard's plan to save him. Finally, the man's energy left. He had no more fight. And when he quit beating the water and stopped leaning on his own understanding and stopped using his own methods, the lifeguard took over. The lifeguard worked his way around to the man's back, reached over his shoulder, cupped him underneath the, on the chin under his, with his hand and put an elbow in the middle of his shoulder blade. And this allowed the man's body to come closer uh, to the surface of the water and rest on the hip of the lifeguard as he sidestroked him out of the water to safety. Even though the man was large, the rescue was possible because he was resting in the strength of his Savior, the one who was going to save him. Once the man was calm, he thanked the lifeguard, and he gave the lifeguard complete credit because he realized his own resources could have never saved him. Beloved, that's what happens when we think we can save ourselves any other means by which God has provided. There was a huge price that needed to be paid. There is no other way. Jesus is the only way. Those are my words. Those are God's words. I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. My friends, if there's one here today and you think you're going to save yourself or you think you're going to get into heaven any other way than by trusting in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, You're like that man that's flailing around in the water trying to save yourself. And the Savior's just waiting for you to get tired of him. Trying to save yourself so he can come in and actually save you. There is no other means of salvation other than Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you thought, well, I'm a good person. Or maybe I've got this or I've got that. Or I'm going to think my way to God. That's what I tried to do for 40 years. I'm going to think my way to God. Some of you are trying to earn your way to God, serve your way to God. 
get to God through church attendance, get to God. There is no other way except through Christ. Amen? Amen. If you're here today, brothers and sisters, and you're not absolutely sure of that, if you haven't believed that in your heart and confessed that with your mouth, I encourage you to do that today. There is no other way to heaven except through Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the wonderful reminder from your truth. Lord, I thank you for this verse, which really is just chock full of theology. Lord, what a challenge it is to my own heart as well, Lord. How many times do I try to do things in my own strength? How many times do I try to move away from you and do things, Lord, apart from you? And Lord, those are so futile. But I'm thankful, Lord, that my salvation is resting solely in you and your finished work on the cross. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins. And I pray, Lord, if there's one here in our midst who does not know that and believe that in their heart, that today would be the day, maybe just right where they're sitting, Lord, today would be the day when they would just surrender it all to you. They quit flailing their arms in the ocean of this world. And Lord, just rest comfortably in their Savior. Thank you, Father, again for this message. Apply it to our hearts and our minds in a way that brings you honor and glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.